This episode is brought to you by Cart Driver, Denver's home for wood-fired pizzas, fresh oysters, seasonal market plates, cocktails, and conversation. This is Coral, host of Meant to Be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I've been a part of the HRN community for two years, and even after all that time, I'm constantly inspired by the incredible voices of our network. Each week, I record my show in the HRN studio, made from two recycled shipping containers, because I'm excited to bring you, our listeners, the most important stories existing at the intersection of food and culture. All of us here at HRN make food radio because we love it. This year, HRN is celebrating its 10th anniversary, but we need your support to keep food radio going strong for the next decade. Join the HRN community today by becoming a member. Go to heritageradionetwork.org donate right now. You can even show some love for my show by selecting Meant to be Eaten in the designation drop-down menu. Thanks for listening to HRN. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. Simply put, John T. Edge thinks and writes about the American South. John T.'s work examining, documenting, and exploring the diverse food cultures of the American South is oft-referenced and widely trusted and revered. A writer, thought leader, and director of the Southern Foodways Alliance, he also makes regular appearances on Iron Chef and NPR's All Things Considered. The common thread being John's belief in and pursuit of the cultural narrative that food so uniquely affords. John T. is joining us right now from the road where we were just talking about um, gas station snacks and the crazy neon orange onion rings he's, he ate on this trip. Um, thank you so much for joining us today, John T. Happy to. Thank you. So I uh, did some poking around um, on the internet about your background and saw that you got an MFA in writing. Um, how does that influence your work now? Um, I, um, you know, from the beginning of my writing career, I've wanted to tell stories using food as the prompt. Um, I've been less interested in writing about food, per se, than writing about all the things that food allows us access to think and write about. And those are, to me, kind of humanity's concerns. Those are, you know, racism and class difference and gender inequity and identity. Um, all those things that really deeply, profoundly matter. And I think that, you know, while pursuing an MFA myself, and now I teach in a MFA program in narrative nonfiction at the University of Georgia, all that work is an attempt to use one way of thinking, in my case, food, um, as a way to build character and scene and help the reader understand what's at stake. And those are the tools of a fiction writer, and those well applied are the tools of a nonfiction writer or a documentary filmmaker. Um, you know, it's all about kind of getting at the things that really vex us, the things that really trouble us, the really things that excite us. And that's what narrative attempts to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, did you have kind of a seminal plate of food where you thought... Um that kind of inspired this connection for you? No. Um, <laughs> you know, it, 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 there's, there's, a, there's a bunch of different meals that inspire me along the way, but even more than that, it's the people. So, you know, if you, if, if you bust out of this idea that it doesn't start with the food, but starts with the people who cook the food or the people who raise the crops or the people who bust the tables or wash the dishes, that it becomes the people who are who offer that 
epiphany. Um, and that's the way it was for me. Um, whether that person was um, a woman named Mitty Coulter who worked a chopping block in a barbecue restaurant about a half mile from where I grew up, um, or whether it was Deacon Burton who was um, who in Atlanta, Georgia, in the Inman Park neighborhood, um, was a deacon in a church, ran a, um, a bus charter service, repaired televisions, and fried chicken. Like, before we started talking about the gig economy, Deacon Burton in the 1970s and 80s and 90s in Atlanta, Georgia, was the king of the gig economy. Um, people like that or where I gained insights, and the food was just what we got got me over the transom. You know, the mm-hmm. food what lured me in. The people who what kept me, and the people are the kind of my attempt to do narrative work are to bring to life those people, not the food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in, in my poking about you, um, I saw that you also used to think and research on folk art, and I feel like folk art or any art in general really also provides this portal for us to look into our deepest anxieties or values or um, desires. And so what is it about food that so uniquely affords us this way of, of talking or uncovering cultural narrative? Yeah, I mean, I think if you, folk art's a great way to talk about it. Folk art is, you know, promises us access to kind of working class creativity, right? So um, the notion of folk art is this is the art of everyday people who are not trained as artists but are compelled to express themselves. And um, for many of us who write about food um, who don't, spend most of our time focused upon chefs, but spend our time focused on um, kind of everyday restaurants and cafes and diners and the like and find that's where the narratives lurk. Um, I think we're all looking for the same thing. We're looking for um, unvarnished, honest expression. Um, we're looking for um, food that is, uh, that is, um, that is without pretense and is informed by um, the culture into which you were born and the culture into which you assimilate and the culture you reject, um, that all those tensions um, show up in folk art, um, whether it's the ecstatic vision of someone like Thornton Dahl, um, you know, an artist who worked with, um, with metal in um, Bessemer, Alabama, or you're talking about um, Helen Turner, a barbecue pit master in Brownsville, Tennessee, who steps into the smoke each day um, and works two barely controlled fires in a screened kitchen behind her barbecue restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're looking for food and for art and for experience that is an honest reflection of the culture and offers us access to a world we might not otherwise glimpse. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully in that process, you gain empathy, um, that, that the narrative you carry forward is one of empathy, not of exoticism, not an attempt to say this is the other. 
and therein lies the struggle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I totally agree with that. Um, I feel like um, not only for those consuming the art, but for those creating the art, um, art kind of provides this way to reflect and, like you said, provide a very honest look at um, the world around us. But how do you feel about kind of the problems of collecting said art? I, we yeah. like there, there's some sort of problematic. There's there's some issues right with identifying this art that's not of your own experience or of your own culture and then collecting it and saying, claiming understanding. And so how would you go about navigating that? Well, I mean, you know, it it is a question of consumption is what you're talking about. And that's, you know, that is, um, in essence, a question at the heart of some of the, the conversations we're having now about food, that consumption um, does not, necessarily lead us on a path toward empathy or understanding. Um, consumption is based in acquisition. So to, um, to, um, to acquire a piece of art um, does not, you know, art does not come with an instruction manual. Art does not come with, um, you know, a, a, uh, a way of understanding. You apply your own perspective to the art that you value, and when you do that, you are, you know, you're you are shaping that art. Just as when you step into a restaurant and sit down, let's say, you know, I went to yesterday. I went to some um, fish camps in the upstate region of South Carolina around Spartanburg, um, you know, I see those rooms, you know, with wooden booths and metal trays on which flounder and hush puppies and coleslaw are served. I see those through my own perspective, through my own middle class white perspective. Um, Just as I see an artwork created by um, oh, Howard Spencer, um, who was informed by religiosity and, and deep belief in a Baptist tradition in a different way because I'm a Presbyterian of middle class. Like, that exchange between artist and cook and consumer and collect give and take, there's tension there and to fully appreciate food or to fully appreciate art, we have to embrace the notion that there is tension there, that it's not a simple, you acquire the thing, but you take on the qualities um, and the, the, the kind of understanding the artist intended. You can just acquire something, plank it on your wall, or acquire something to eat it and it's in your belly and not be transformed, not be changed, not be challenged. And I wish for more. And I think, you know, thinking eaters and um, art collectors all wish for more in our better moments. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so to kind of telescope outwards, if food and art are so uh, good at providing this honest and accessible portal into the creator's lives, um, what what if the narrative is untrue or what if the wrong voices are are telling the story 
Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you, you, you know there's a notion in, in uh, you know, in, in literary criticism of the unreliable narrator. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, not, not, um, not all art is as it seems. Not all food is as it seems. Um, so taking any of that um, without engaging in, in a kind of deep examination of the place you are and what the owners of a restaurant or the makers or maker of a painting um, uh, intends um, can get you um, sideways. In the same way that, you know, I've written in cases about um, the notion that a restaurant or a, let's take a, you know, a, a lunch counter um, in a restaurant can offer the promise of democracy. You know, at a lunch counter, you have to kind of stoop to sit at a lunch counter. Um, at a lunch counter, you sit in close proximity to your fellow woman or man. Um, at a lunch counter, everybody eats the same. Um, all those are democratic principles and ideals and you know if you're of christian faith you might recognize in that lunch counter um last last supper imagery and, and religion religiosity um but as we all know with the you know the troubled history of our our nation and the racist history of our nation um lunch counters were for the longest time not places of democracy. They were places of exclusion. So, you know, I, I'm not suggesting that every time you slide into a counter somewhere that um, that you must, you know, reel, like, you must reel back that history. But I am telling you that every time I slide into a lunch counter, I think about all those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so how might you explain this kind of perverse interest we take in fording this chasm between classes? Why, why do we find communing with the hog or picking our own food or kind of romantically stirring a pot for hours so appealing? I think we all, not we all, many of us, um, see food as a potential bridge across difference. Um, that... Um, communal feeds, whether that's a, you know, a tobacco harvest lunch in, on the eastern plain of North Carolina, whatever it may be, that notion that, you know, people across a racial divide or people across a class divide or a gender divide might stir the same pot, um, you know, I would, I would say that's, that's what we're all aiming for. Like, this isn't about food. This is about a want to stitch back together a riven place. And, you know, I say that as a Southerner very who attempts to be well-versed in the history of, of the place we live, and I also say that as an American who now has to say that, you know, so many of the narratives that we set in the South that said, you know, we are, in, we are a place riven by race, now recognizes in this moment that the ways in which the South are riven are just writ small versions of the larger problems that our nation has never worked through and are rooted in a rejects 
of um, Reconstruction are rooted in the white supremacy that burbled back up then and and is aided and abetted by um, Donald Trump and his henchmen now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is meant to be eaten on Heritage Radio Network. We'll finish this short, short interview after a short break. This episode is brought to you by Cart Driver, Denver's home for wood-fired pizzas, fresh oysters, seasonal market plates, cocktails, and conversation. Tucked in a 640-square-foot shipping container space in the heart of Denver's Rhino neighborhood, Cart Driver is the perfect place to stop in for an Italian-style spritz, Prosecco on tap, and a wide variety of tinned fish. Open for lunch, dinner, community hour, and late nights seven days a week, Cart Driver is here for you with fresh, domestically sourced ingredients and above all, hospitality. Learn more at cart-driver.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Jimmy Carboni and I'm the host of Beer Sessions Radio here on HRN. My show is an audio ale salon celebrating the world of craft beer, cider, food, and more. Through discussions with industry insiders and knowledgeable beer fans, my friends and I explore every aspect of the brewer's craft, from grains to pint glass and tasting to toasting. You can find Beer Sessions Radio wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. And we're back. And so we were just talking about um, the ways that food and art kind of provide this honest and accessible portal into our inner workings are very honest, um, hopefully very honest, and that the narrators should be reliable. Um, So, John T., how do you think we construct our modern identities with those of an elusive and always seemingly culturally richer past? That's a big one. Um, (laughs) Last 10 minutes. It's a good one. I think I can speak to my own experience of what's going on in the South now and, and in a way, what's going on in my head. I think two things are happening at once in the American South. Um, that um, Southerners are reappraising our region's past um, and recognizing that the received story um, has been mistold and purposefully mistold um, for decades. Um, that that you know the seeming clarity that came out of the civil rights movement era was not so clear, um, and um, and. You know, some of that is um, very much a result of mother, the Mother Emanuel terrorist attack and Charlottesville and the horrors of Charlottesville and the tiki torch crazy people. Um, um, but at the same time, um, that reckoning with our past, that attempt to understand more clearly and fully the past of the South um, is running parallel with 
a reach toward the future and an attempt to understand the present. And in food, that plays out in this way. So, um, you know, I'm on the road right now, and I'm heading down I-85, and I'm, I'm going to pull up short of Atlanta um, to go to Athens, Georgia. Um, but if I kept going to Atlanta, you know, and, and got off just north of the city, I'd go travel Buford Highway. And Buford Highway is Atlanta's kind of multicultural corridor with Sinaloan taco spots, um, cheek of jowl with Szechuan fried chicken spots. And um, there's this beautiful, crazy quilt diversity in that place. Um, and across a broad spectrum of race and class, Southerners are apprehending the future of the region in places like that. The South is diversifying. Not the highest number of new arrivals in the South, but some of the highest rates by percentage of new arrivals anywhere in the nation are showing up in the American South for jobs and for opportunity. Um, so two things are happening at once. There's a, there is a, um, there is a new appraisal of old, of the older South, um, and a harder look at who we were. Um, and there's also, you know, we are appraising what the future looks like and the diversity on the horizon and the fact that the whole of the nation will be majority minority, um, quite soon. So to reconcile those two, to look deeply into your past, take a hard look at your past, and also to look what's right in front of you and look as clear as you can and realize that that um, the American South is changing and the old ideas you have and even the old definitions, saying the South is a place of barbecue and fried chicken. Well, the South is a place of pollo al carbon and, um, you know, and, and, uh, and pork belly bao. Um, you know, the South is changing... The South is trying to make sense of its past. And working those two puzzles in our head at once are what it's going to take to make sense of culture more broadly and food and art um, more specifically. Mm -hmm. Doing both at once. Yeah, so in looking to both the past and the future, what misconceptions about the South, have you and I guess other Southerners kind of working to construct and reconstruct their identities been working to debunk? And to the future, how will Southern food mold or evolve alongside American cuisine? I hope, um, my hope for this moment, I was just talking with a a friend of mine, a really fine writer named George Singleton. Um, We had lunch together earlier today. And, um, this feels like a moment when Southerners across a broad um, spectrum of creative expression, George is a novelist and short story writer, I attempt narrative nonfiction um, and help produce a podcast and films and the like. Um, I have friends who are clothing designers, um, Natalie Channon and Billy Reed, both in Florence, Alabama. I have friends who are musicians, people like Joe Kwan and the Avick Brothers in, in Raleigh, North Carolina. 
we have similar conversations in that despite the um, horrors of this moment, we also recognize a new purpose um, and a new importance and a new kind of linking of food, music, fashion, art, all those different things, all those different ways of expressing yourself that are coming out of the South that are stating without equivocation that the South can be a place of solutions as well as a place where America situates its problems. That that some of the some of the horrors that are visited upon America today that um, you know that, that the South um, I won't pretend to know we how know how to solve them, but um, I will say that that we've never most of us many of us have have long recognized that we can't look away from those problems. I think America looked away from those problems for a long time, and I see now a possibility that the South can begin to lead an American conversation about true reconciliation, about reparations, about fixing this busted wagon that is America. And I sound like I'm getting on my high horse, and maybe I am, and, and all this may be flawed, and it probably is, but, but I believe it in this moment, and I see connections across all those different areas of expression, music, art, fashion, literature, um, people who want to do good and recognize the wrong we've done before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me today, John T. My pleasure. Thanks for asking good questions. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.